do you ever sit and wonder sometimes, reflecting on your own life, and ask the question, is God using me right now? Am I being an effective instrument in the hand of Almighty God? Is he bringing about his plans and his purposes in and through me in my own situation? Do you ever look at your own life or reflect on decisions that you've made, uh, sometimes poor ones, and ask the question, am I even able to be used by God? I've made such a a foul-up of my life of decisions that I've made. Can God even use me? Could I even be uh, useful for God to bring about his purposes and his plans? And if you've ever ever asked those kind of questions in your life at all, uh, then uh, you're in great company. Uh, Many of us have asked those questions. Uh, And uh, praise God, uh, his word, his perfect, inerrant, and inspired word uh, gives us assurance and an answer to that question today. So we'll dig into that. So it'll be helpful if you've got your Bibles open. Um, We've got a lot of ground to cover, uh, but uh, I assure you we'll be on time. Famines have a huge impact in the Bible, not just just practically, but theologically as well, particularly in the book of Genesis. And we'll actually see that develop more as we progress through Genesis to the life of Joseph. Joseph. But verse 1, it actually sets the scene for us. Now there was a famine in the land. Now remember, famines for a nomadic herder, they are bad news. Okay, if your life depends on food, really, really bad news. But also, if your entire business is feeding cattle on this food, then a famine is double bad news. Flocks and herds and servants. And so actually, we can't stress the implications of a famine enough. This is Bronze Age bankruptcy at its finest. And so this scene opens with about as much suspense as you, as you could possibly have. And it's in this potentially fatal situation that Isaac has his divine encounter with the living God, verses 2 to 6. And it's often, many Christians here, you will know this, it's often in the most impossible, the most difficult of circumstances, that the Lord supernaturally comforts and meets with his people providing protection and assurance. And it's no different here. You see, there's a genuine and legitimate reason for Isaac's fear. And God not only comforts him with the message, if you have a look at that, I will be with you, but he even instructs him on where to go. He tells him, don't go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you. Live in the land of Philistia. And so this is divine protection and provision. And he promises that that he'll not only survive, but also he'll thrive in the land. I'll give you all these lands, he promises, descendants and blessings. He's echoing the Abrahamic promise that we read about in verse 12, uh, in chapter 12. And the only major addition here is this phrase, I will be with you. He repeats it here and later on in the chapter. And so... Last week, if you remember, we actually left wondering uh, where the blessing of Abraham would go to. Abraham has died at this point. And so our text answers that question. We're no left wondering. Actually, the the blessing has been given to Isaac. Isaac is the one that the Lord is going to bestow his blessing to. He's clearly a worthy recipient of this blessing. 
well, not quite, actually, uh, as our text answers. Uh, you've ever, if you've ever heard the phrase, he's just like his dad, said in that way as well, quite condescending and quite negative. Um, it's quite an appropriate uh, uh, response for, for the opening verses. Now look at verse 7. Uh, Isaac is in the land, uh, he's in the land of the Philistines, and the men of that place, they ask him about his wife. And he lies to them and says, she is my sister, because he was afraid. And if you remember, uh, this is a repeat of his, of his father's sin. He did it twice in chapters 12 and chapters 20. So unlike this legitimate fear of the famine, actually the fear that Isaac's now experiencing is actually to save his own skin. And in doing so, what he does is he risks the life of his mother of the woman, uh, sorry, of the woman that he loves, his mother's children. No, his chi- children's mother. Get it right, Ashley. He's risking the life of his wife, and he's risking the life of uh, the mother of his children. And actually, unlike his father Isaac's sin, it's not even a half truth. You know, it's not even Sarah was kind of Abraham's sister in a weird, related way. But actually, Rebecca is not Isaac's sister at all. And this wasn't a fleeing moment of passion either. Uh, it wasn't like a deer caught in headlights and he, and he, and he quickly made this, this mistake. You know, sometimes we can actually excuse people um, under like great amounts of pressure and they, they lie or they commit some atrocity. Now, we shouldn't forgive them, but we can kind of understand it. Um, but this wasn't a fleeing moment. In fact, the text tells us, if you look at verse 8, actually it said that Isaac, after he'd been there a long time. So we, do, we don't know how long that is, days, weeks, months possibly years, but the fact of the matter remained, he, through his fear and through his lie, risked the life of his wife, the sanctity of her own humanity and the sanctity of their own marriage. And it's by God's grace that Isaac wasn't actually, uh, that nothing happened to Rebecca, and it's by God's grace that Isaac was found out. Look at verse 10, I find this actually quite incredible. Uh, the king of the Philistines is actually repugnant at the behavior of this so-called man of God. Look at verse 10, he's raging, look at this. What have you done? What is this you've done to us? One of the men might well have slept with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. He sees the implication of Isaac's sin. And the risk that Isaac took in saving his own skin could have so easily brought terrible guilt upon these people. Now, bear in mind, the Philistines are the enemies of God's people. So the original readers of this are no doubt saying, wait a minute, this is the king of the Philistines, and he is acting, it seems, in a more morally superior way than our ancestor Isaac. This fact would not have been lost on the original readers, and it shouldn't be lost on us either. Just as an aside, I wonder if you ever find, either at work or in other spheres of life, that your non-Christian colleagues or friends often act in a more uh, honorable and moral way than us Christians sometimes. I don't know know if it's just me that's experienced that. Uh, I hope not. I'm on my own here, if so. But I don't think it will be. Um, and I just think this is a, it's, it's an aside, but I think it's a, it's a challenge to us. Actually, it seems here that the king of the Philistines, 
um, has, a, has a more of an awareness of the sanctity of marriage and of a moral compass than Isaac. And we should be challenged by that. It's actually quite surprising that the king doesn't just kill him where he stands. But instead, actually, God, by his sovereignty and by his grace, enables divine protection through this king that he's just defended. Verse 11, he actually makes a decree that if anybody harms this man or his wife, then they shall be surely put to death. And that's the point. That's the big point here, that the sovereign Lord is bringing about his purposes, his promises, even in the face of sinful decisions of fear, driven by fear uh, and also opposition. So Isaac's fearful acts, rather than actually getting him killed, which he should have done, and bringing his wife into grave danger, has actually ended up in a decree that protects him and his wife. The following passage, actually verse, 11, uh, verse 12 to 22, um, is a, a I read this and I thought, what's all this about? There's, this, there's wells, he digs a well and then he gets shoved away and there's another well and, and he's shoved away. What it seems to be is it's recording the opposition, the opposition that Isaac's facing in this land and God's sovereign protection and his provision throughout all of it. There's evidence that God's truly with him. Remember, Isaac's a herder. And what does he do? It says in verse 13 of verse 12, he actually plants crops this is the only indication in the scriptures uh, that of, the, um, of the patriarchs planting crops. And in the first year, it says he has a hundredfold, which is the highest that you can have in the scriptures. So there's a clear evidence of God's divine protection with him. When God is working through you, um, he can make your labors fruitful. So no matter how inexperienced you are as a farmer, he's made Isaac's efforts fruitful. No matter how inexperienced you are, the Lord, when he is working through you, makes you fruitful. And that is a good reminder to me this evening as I preach this message and to all of us as we serve in our various capacities as the Lord's people. God is blessing and bearing fruit through Isaac even amidst his terrible decision making. And now he's at the point where he's got so many flocks and so many herds and so many servants that the Philistines actually, they envy him. He's a source of envy and jealousy. And like all sin that begins in the heart, it manifests itself outwardly. And so what do they do? They block his wells and they ask him to leave. He's too big for the neighborhood. He's like that family that's moved in with 14 kids and four cats and three dogs and a shire horse and a few ferrets. And it's just stressing the neighbors out. They can't cope. You need to go. You need to leave. Isaac, please go. And now he's in a greater problem because he's on the search for water again, but now he's got more mouths to feed. More flocks, more servants, more herds. And yet he's pushed from pillar to post as these nomadic herders oppose him. Where will respite come from? And again, it's from the merciful Lord who not only enables to find him room in the land, Isaac worships him for that, but he once again appears to him and gives him a divine word, a divine comfort. Verses 23 to 25, that night the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid for I am with you. I am with you, says the Lord. 
This entire section, actually, that we just read about Isaac is framed with these two promises of God, these two divine revelations, with this, this phrase, I am with you. And so what do we take from this? Well, like all of our patriarchs that we read, Isaac was a mixed character. So though he was a true believer in the one true God in Yahweh, actually, the Lord, when he reveals himself to Isaac, doesn't say, I am with you for you are a good person. I am with you for you are worthy. I am with you uh, because of the faithfulness that you have demonstrated. But actually, in both cases, he says, I am with you because of my servant Abraham. If you look at that in verse 5, in the first promise, and in verse 24, because Abraham obeyed me and did everything I required of him, keeping my commands and my decrees and my instructions, because of Abraham, you will receive the promised blessing. It's for the sake of him. And so Isaac receives the sovereign protection of God's care uh, from opposition, from his own stupidity, uh, and blessing through the crops, not for his own faithfulness, but because of his father Abraham, because of his faith. And so as the people on the edge of the promised land, as the Israelites read their family histories, they read their origin story, they would read and rightly recognize that even amidst the most blundering of repeated mistakes and failures, that the sovereign God is going to bring about his good because, because the Lord made his promise. Now, if we remember Abraham, it wasn't because he was super faithful or amazing in every aspect, but actually it was because God himself had made the promise. God in chapter 12 had made the covenant with Abraham that he would be faithful, that he would bless him. And so as the people read this text, they would be encouraged to see that actually God is bringing about his purposes because of his own faithfulness, not because of the faithfulness of Isaac. And so will he not do the same for us? We can see the encouragement and the assurance for us. We that are not only physical sons, well, we're not, many of us in this room are not physical sons of Abraham. We're not Jews. But we're sons of Abraham. We are heirs by faith. Galatians 3 tells us that if you belong to Christ, if you have repented of your sin and put your trust in Jesus Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And so if we belong to Jesus Christ, then we can have the same confidence as Isaac and Abraham. In the face of fear and opposition and rivalry, even in the face of the mess that we make ourselves through our own sinful decisions, through our own fear-driven decisions, we can know the truth that not only is God with us, but the affirmed promise in Hebrews 13.5 that I, not only is he with us, but I will never leave you or forsake you. As we heard this morning, why? Because God has united us to Christ by faith. And as we'll pick up later on uh, in Romans in our morning series, there's neither height nor depth, nor things in the present, nor things in the past, nor future, nor famine, nor sword, nothing that can keep us or separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. God said to Abraham, for the sake of God said to Isaac, for the sake of my servant Abraham, I will bless you. Christian brother, Christian sister, we could say the same. For the sake of my son Jesus, we can hear those words. For the sake of my son Jesus, I will bless you. I will bring about my promises in and through you. And so I think that's the big point of this chapter here. But there, there are also some other implications for us from the text. 
Number one, that sins of the parents are so often repeated in their children. Isaac repeated the gross sin of his father. And I think there's the weight of this passage and is particularly sharp on those of us who are parents. Ask the question, what kind of parents are we? This is a real challenge. Do we expect our children to be godly followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, but our own lives leave a lot to be desired? Our worship or our commitment is lukewarm, and yet we expect our children to be progressing in the Lord. Here's a question. What would your child or your children identify as the thing that gets you excited? What would they say gets you out of bed in the morning? Would the answer be, for the glory of Jesus? I shudder to think that would be my daughter's reaction. I mean, she's only nine months old, but I mean, you know, maybe my wife's reaction. There's a story of a preacher, um, I think he's a Scottish preacher called Eric Alexander. And his daughter was asked what she loved most about her dad. And she said, the thing I love most about my dad is that he is the same man in the pulpit than he is at home. And I just wonder if we could say that about ourselves. Are we the same person at home with our children, at home with our parents, at university, with our friends, are we the same person that we are in church? Are we the same person that we purport to be? Are we the same person that we um, uh, believe that we are in terms of the, the scriptures? It's a challenge. Now, there's obviously a, a counter to this. We can raise our children in a godly way, and they can still walk away from the Lord. And there are many of you in here that have that sharp and bitter experience. And so there's a reality that we need to make an individual decision ourselves and it's not just uh, all down to our parenting. And so that's a truth. Uh, and yet, it's a real challenge, uh, the things that we treasure. So often uh, we treasure the things of this world over and above the relationship with our God and these realities will be born out in our families and in our own lives. So that's implication number one. Implication number two, uh, fear is an awful motivator. I'm a little bit like Isaac sometimes in that I'm too often concerned for my own skin. And I'm often concerned about what people will think about me. What will they think about me if I say that or if I do that? How will that affect their opinion of me? So a challenge, do we remain silent in using the excuse, I just want to be, uh, remain peaceful, you know, brotherly love, let's not, let's not uh, challenge one another. But actually, we should really be speaking up. Out of fear of what other people might think of us, do we not challenge that brother or that sister because of their sinful behavior? Now, for some of us, it's not a problem speaking uh, uh, too little when we should speak up. For some people, it's speaking too much when we should be quiet. And so um, we could take that as an application. Uh, I was reading about King Saul and just struck by how much of his ministry, how much of his life was so driven by fear that almost everything he touched was 
ruined. And just an encouragement, I love the ESV translation of uh, 2 Timothy 1.7. For God gave us not a spirit of fear, but one of power and love and self-control. So Isaac in our passage, he comes across as, as timid, as quite easily pushed around, and yet God's blessing still comes through him. That was our first point. Fear will not divert God's promised blessing. Should have said that. Our second point, uh, deception will not derail God's promised plan. Deception will not derail God's promised plan. Fear is never a great attribute in a leader at all. And Isaac's questionable spiritual leadership continues up until his death. If you look at um, chapter 27, verse 1, the, <clears throat> the text recalls Isaac's um, blindness. When Isaac was old and his eyes were weak, uh, were so weak that he could not see. Um, it's quite ironic because there's enough evidence, I think, in the scriptures to suggest that, um, that his blindness wasn't only physical, but actually there was a sense in which he was spiritually uh, blinded as well. Because of his love, his almost idolatrous love for his son Esau, Isaac was actually unwilling to recognize that Esau was utterly, utterly unworthy of the title of firstborn or of the blessing of God. Verse 34 of chapter 26 actually starts to paint more of this picture of Esau. We've already seen that he would sell his birthright for a little bit of fast food. But right now what we see is just a man driven by lusts. And he marries Canaanite women. So not only is he willing to spurn his birthright, but now he's not giving two hoots about the plans and the purposes of God and decides to marry these Canaanite women. And in the light of all of this, Isaac is still wanting to give blessings to Esau. Verse 4, prepare me that tasty food I like and bring it to me to eat so that I may give you my blessing before I die. This is surely spiritual short-sightedness. But it seems like Rebecca has other plans. Uh, back in Genesis 25, 23, uh, we actually have seen already that God, through his revelation to Rebecca, has already foreordained that the younger, that the older will serve the younger. And now we don't know whether Rebecca had actually spoken to Isaac about this. It's clear that communication in their marriage wasn't great. Um, and because of that, there was a division. Isaac loved Esau and Rebecca loved Jacob. And so... Just a, a, a point of reference, uh, favoritism with your children is not a good idea. It does, it does not work. And we actually see the fruits of this division now. So after hearing, overhearing Isaac promise the blessing to Esau, uh, she is quick on the move and moves into action. Now, my son, verse 8, listen to me carefully and do what I tell you. Go out to the flock and bring me two choice young goats so I can prepare some tasty food for your father just the way he likes it. And naturally, Jacob was swept away by this moment of madness and, uh, and influenced majorly by his mother. He, he said, no, I can't do that. Not quite, not Jacob. Uh, no, in fact, no sooner had he been told this woman's deception that he was already thinking of implications of what might happen. Just as all good liars and deceivers do, he thought, okay, well, if that happens, this might be an outcome. Okay, so I need to prepare for that as well. But mummy says, I'm, I'm bald. I'm as bald as a budgie, and my brother is ridiculously hairy. My daddy's going to find us out. Uh, what, what do we do? 
don't worry, son, leave it to me. Let the curse fall on me. And in this next scene, in this epic account, um, is the climax of this chapter. If If you've ever watched a film like Ocean's Eleven, or something like that. Basically, the the culmination of the film is this this grand bank robbery or casino robbery where they're planning it for months and they they think about um, uh, different uh, disguises and costumes and they uh, work out different codes for the doors and it's it's hugely complex and deceptive and deceitful. Um, And there's this big scene where it all comes together. And this is it, this is our big scene. Everything's in place. The timer begins, it's showtime. And he needs to be quick, because Esau is on his way back with some wild game, and so he could get caught at any moment. The tension is at fever pitch. Jacob, my father, he says. Who is this? He lies. I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you said, give me your blessing. No messing around, this is what he wants. Isaac thinks to himself, that's unusual, he's he's back quite quickly. Waitrose wasn't quite on the corner. He needed to actually go and catch some wild game. How did you get the food so quick? The Lord your God gave me success. This deceiver not only lies, but blasphemes God's name in the process. He knows how to manipulate. Isaac's still not quite sure, something's not right. So he's blind, the text has told us, but he's not deaf. Verse 21, come near, son, so I can touch you to know whether you are really Esau or not. And this is the part in the film. This is the part in the great big scene where there's a snag. They can't quite fight the right code for the door. Or there's an extra guard that they hadn't taken account of. Something that they weren't expecting. And so the tension raises. Hearts are pounding. Will I be found out? When will Esau be back? He looks at the clock. Jacob went close to his father, Isaac, who touched him and said, the voices are the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. But he's been prepared for this. The deceiver has prepared. Rebecca's plan had worked. Her senile husband had fallen for it. But he asks him again, are you really my son Esau? He lies again. I am. This time short, breathy, trying not to conceal his voice. Isaac's clearly unsure, but the doubts and concerns of where this blessing is going to go are only outweighed by the grumbling of his stomach. And so filling his belly with food, guzzling down the choice wine, Isaac's now ready to bless the imposter. Come here, my son, and kiss me, he says. And when he caught the smell of his clothes, he blessed him. And the blessing here, he blesses him, is the smell of a field. May God give you heaven's dew, the earth's riches, um, an abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you. It's a very earthly orientated blessing. And now we know with the coming of the New Testament that that, uh, uh, Hebrews tells us that actually Abraham looked for not a land that was built by human hands, but actually uh, a city, an architect whose builder was God. And so... uh, here we read this physical blessing, but actually we, we know that within it contains an ultimate spiritual blessing. And so Jacob is out of there like a shot. Yes, he's received the blessing. Quick, get out. And the tension's really, really high as well. Verse 30. Uh, as Jacob had scarcely left his father's presence, Esau returns. Who are you, Isaac asks. 
the realization falls on him. I'm Esau, your firstborn. His body convulses and he's violently trembling. And the realization on Esau, it's all gone. And as the New Testament records for us, though he sought a blessing with tears, it was all lost. All Esau could receive in verses 39 to 40 was an anti-blessing. And so the question surely for us is, what are we to think of Jacob? Is he, is he a role model? He really does not feel like a role model. And so often I read these accounts and we can think, what on earth is this teaching us? Why is this in God's inspired and inerrant word? Why is it in the biblical record? Because it actually doesn't make their ancestors seem very nice at all. I think that's part of the reason, that's part of the purpose. If ever we want to affirm the brokenness and the fallenness of humanity, Genesis is a really helpful guide. But I think it's more than that. The big point here is assurance for God's people. As the Israelites that have stood on the brink of the promised land, on the brink of Jordan, in the face of treacherous Canaanites, in the face of their enemies with difficulties that were about to face them, they would ask the question, how can we know that God is going to bring about his promises? How can we know that God is going to come good on his word? What assurances do we have? And our passage here shows us that whether by sinful human cunning or deception, that God's purposes of election will stand. God's purposes and his promises will be brought around. Remember, this is Jacob, the one who would be later renamed Israel. He's the father of the 12 tribes uh, and the brother of God's enemy, Esau or Edom. And so God's purposes and God's plans stand because he is in control, because God himself is at the helm. Even through wicked deception, God brings about his plans and his purposes. And just before there are some of us that want to maybe justify the means, we must recognize, firstly, that uh, the Bible never condones sin. He's not condoning these actions here. And also, this was not without cost. Yet the blessing came to Jacob, but actually Rebekah, who helped him deceive and who deceived herself, never saw her beloved son again. And Jacob himself, as he went to Laban, would be the one who would be deceived himself as he ended up with Leah. And later on, as he was deceived by his son Judah, who slaughtered, ironically, a goat, himself was slaughtered, uh, himself who was deceived by a slaughtered goat. And actually, the Bible doesn't even record Rebecca's death. A clear uh, confirmation that what she's done was despicable but this isn't included in the biblical record for us to get lost and confused in the mysteries of divine election uh, God's providence and human responsibility but as I mentioned before it's for assurance assurance that God's purposes will stand that he will bring about his promise through his chosen uh, instrument to his people the basis, as we've looked at before, for God's blessing reaching Isaac and Jacob was not through his own words, uh, not through his own deeds, but through the blessing of his father, Abraham. 
And so people of God, brother or sister, if you are here trusting in Jesus Christ, in the finished work of the Son of God, in his life and death and resurrection, in his ascension, and in the outpouring of the Spirit, then how much more, as God's people, can we trust that God will bring about his plans and his purposes through you, through his church? Not because we're any better than Jacob or Isaac, because we're not. I think we, we can see much of ourselves when we look at the patriarchs. But actually, it's because we are united to the one who lived out God's law perfectly, who will never leave us or forsake us. Through the eternal spirit, we have access to the Father because of the righteousness of Christ and of Christ alone. And surely, after all that he's done, sending his own son, will he not bring about the promises for us, his people? And so, let's just think about three promises before we close. Three promises of God that he will bring about in our lives. Number one, he will use suffering in our lives and he will use opposition in our lives for good. God promises that no matter the suffering that we face or the opposition because of our faith, that God will use that for our good. He will shape and fashion us according uh, to his purposes. Um, if you want to meditate on a text later tonight or sometime this week, look at Romans 5. Uh, go on and look at how uh, suffering uh, produces perseverance, which produces character, which produces hope. So promise number one, God will use suffering and opposition in our lives to bring about his purposes. Number two, God's promise that even though, our own, even though we make stupid mistakes, God will actually shape and fashion us into the likeness of Christ through those mistakes. And I think we have an example here in the person of Jacob. Actually, his deception enables him, uh, means that he has to flee to Laban. And he ends up receiving a double dose of his own deception. And yet in and through that, God shapes him and fashions him into, be, into an instrument that God will use for his own glory. And so brother or sister, if you're anything like me and you have made many stupid mistakes and you're looking at your life and you're thinking, I have made a stupid mistake and this is why I'm in this reason, be assured that God will use that in order to bring about his purposes. So he will use suffering uh, for our good and opposition. Through our own stupid mistakes, he will shape and fashion us into the image of Christ. And lastly, his promise is he will keep us to the end. Matthew 28, 20 tells us that he will be with us until the end of the age. John Piper says, if he calls, he keeps. If he calls, he keeps. The Lord will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. 1 Corinthians 1, 8-9. Brother or sister, if you are struggling in the race, if you are doubting or wondering what is God doing with me or feeling in a place where you just don't know whether you're going to make it to the end, if God has called you, he will keep you. And he has given you means of grace, the people that he calls 
his own, the church, here at Charlotte Chapel. If you're struggling to speak to someone, the word, the promises that he's given us, inspired by his spirit, read it, trust it. So Christian, whatever your obstacles, whatever situations you face, even if you've put those obstacles in your own way foolishly, this text gives us confidence and assurance that God, even through the midst of the most deceitful and foolishly fearful situations, God will bring about his promised blessings. Not because we're good, not because we're worthy, but because Jesus Christ, our savior, our high priest, our shepherd, has won our salvation for us, sent his spirit, and he has made us promises that he will never leave us and never forsake us.